Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. This episode is unusual. Many listeners know of Rob Perez. He's an operating partner at General Atlantic, the former CEO of Cubist Pharmaceuticals, and the founder of Life Science Cares. Rob and I have gotten to know each other better the past couple years through our shared passion for mobilizing the biotech community to fight poverty. The Timmerman Traverse for Life Science Cares campaigns have raised $2.9 million over the past three years to fight poverty. Longtime listeners may recall Rob was a guest on this show five years ago, and he spoke about Life Science Cares back then. This time around, Rob wanted to turn the tables. In this episode, he asked the questions, and I was the guest. We discuss how I grew up on a small family farm in southwestern Wisconsin, some early career influences in newspapers, and how I adapted to the market forces that upended journalism in the 21st century. Those experiences all combined to lay the foundation for this new chapter for me as both journalist and social entrepreneur. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, Elego Health Research. With Elego Health Research, a proud sponsor of the long run, clinical trial patient engagement takes just two simple steps. First, Elego searches through their network with access to millions of diverse patients who are pre-vetted for protocol inclusion through HIPAA-compliant identified healthcare data to determine the best intersection for optimized engagement. Second, Elego collaborates with you to assess feasibility, ensuring your protocol works in a real-world health care environment so you easily get the patients you need when you need them. Learn more at elegohealthresearch.com. And... Look forward to face-to-face interactions this October at the Bioinvestor Forum, or BIF, in San Francisco. Accessible and intimate, this conference is designed to accelerate growth within the biopharma industry. Bio's one-on-one partnering system seamlessly brings together emerging biotech companies with industry partners, investors, and bankers. Don't miss your chance to network, learn from experts about what's on the horizon for biotech, and pitch your unique story to potential partners. Held October 17th and 18th at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square. Register now at bio.org BIF. Now, please join Rob Perez and me on the long run. Rob Perez, welcome to the long run. Luke, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, Rob, I, I guess you have a little different idea for a format for this episode. What are you thinking? I do, Luke. Um, I can't think of anything more boring than to have your audience have to listen to me again on the Long Run po- Podcast. So I have an idea to give the audience a chance to actually get to know you as a Long Run guest. So what I'm hoping to do here is to have a little podcast jujitsu and to turn this around and uh, and welcome you, Luke Timmerman, to the Long Run Podcast, if that's okay with you. Okay. Well, um, I think it is um, healthy on occasion to turn the tables and uh, see what it's like to be interviewed instead of the one 
doing the interviewing. So, okay. What do you, what do you want to know? <laughs> All right. Well, first of all, Luke Timmerman, welcome to the long run podcast. And, um, you know, you start often with, um, the background and the backstories of your guests. And I thought I'd start there as well with you. Um, I had the very good fortune to meet your parents at the Life Science Cares Awards, where we named an award after you, the Luke Timmerman Impact Award. And so I had a, a bit of a chance to know about your background, but I don't think your audience really does. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, growing up in Southwest Wisconsin. Yeah, well, thanks, Rob. It, um, it meant a lot to um, have my parents be able to um, uh, witness, uh, that event and for me to receive that, um, that award. Um, okay. So I, as you know, grew up on a small family farm in Southwestern Wisconsin, about 80 acres. Um, it was my mom and dad, uh, and I'm the oldest son and I have a younger sister. Um, my, I'm part of, um, family that goes back. Let's see. I'm the fifth generation of family farmers in southwestern Wisconsin. Um, so lo long history there. Um, <clears throat> I did lots of work, uh, chores that we had to do to take care of the pigs and the cows and bring in the crops. So um, shoveling the manure, <laughs> um, all, all that good stuff, uh, baling hay, cutting it, raking it, putting it in bales, stacking it in barns for the winter. Um, lots of hard manual labor uh, that um, was day in and day out. Um, and it didn't really matter whether it was 90 degrees and humid in the summer or 20 below zero and freezing in the winter. The work had to be done. Um, and uh, this sounds like a pretty, you know, this is not kind of a, an easy existence or easy way to grow up. So how did this, how did this shape you, this kind of work ethic and, and having to, to work on the family farm in this way? Well, we were poor. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't set foot on an airplane until I think I was 17. Hmm. Uh, and maybe not again until I was 22. <laughs> um, like we didn't go on family vacations. <laughs> Uh, didn't, didn't have fancy clothes or things for back to school time, that sort of thing. But we, we didn't go hungry. Um, and, uh, that was, so that was important. I mean, I, I guess, um, discipline and consistency, duty, these things were, um, instilled early on. It's just part of that culture of family farming, which, um, has, uh, it, it was on its way out in the eighties. Uh, if you remember the Jessica Lang movie country, <laughs> that was something of a story of the crisis in small family farming. And we were feeling the pressure from corporate agribusiness, uh, economies of scale. It was uh, a way of life that was under pressure and going away. Uh, and then it was compounded by a couple of really bad drought years when I was in middle school or maybe heading into high school. So this was, um, it was a, it was a wonderful way for me to grow up and develop some good work habits and, and resourcefulness and resilience, figuring out how to solve problems, fix things yourself. Uh, but, um, it, it was stressful too. 
I'm sure everyone wants to know how this this young man who's grown up on a farm in Wisconsin, uh, A, ends up with such an interest in science and and B, you know, has an interest in journalism. How does that, what, what were the early seeds that led you in, in that direction? Well, I wouldn't say I was naturally that interested in science in school. I mean, it was one subject of many. Uh, I, I think uh, the writing was on the wall about family farming. This was just not going to be something that I was going to carry on in that family tradition. Neither me nor my siblings or cousins or any of those people. That We were going to have to find other things to do. We were going to have to go to college. Uh, that was sort of the education was going to be our path to um, upward mobility. And so uh, education, getting good grades were emphasized. And I did well in school. Um in lots of topics, was interested in lots of things. Um, I I would say journalism um, was something I discovered in high school, and as a curious kid, it um, it was like a a license to go out and ask questions of just about anybody doing anything interesting. It was a it was a pathway for learning about everything in the world. And from my, you know, rather sheltered um, existence, I was in, in a small rural place. I, I was just curious about lots and lots of things uh, about the world around me. And so journalism provided that. And what were some of the other things? Obviously, you got you got an early journalism bug. I wonder if you found your love for running and, and kind of, uh, you know, performance sports uh, at that time in your life? Or was that a later um, kind of endeavor? Oh, well, sports were uh, actually a really important influence um, in, in my life. You know, coming from Wisconsin, you got to root for the Green Bay Packers and the Milwaukee Brewers and the Wisconsin Badgers. This is <laughs> stamped in us early on. It's something I really enjoyed doing uh, with my dad. Um, and I played, I, I tried to play sports, but I was kind of small and not that big or fast. So I, a mediocre athlete, but I... Uh, I found that um, I, I, I actually enjoyed the sports journalism in high school. So I would go cover games and uh, eventually um, found a gig with the local newspaper uh, where I could write about uh, Big Ten sports uh, and actually get paid a little bit <laughs> and, and practice my craft of journalism, you know, getting things right, checking your facts, hitting your deadlines, uh, writing clearly for a, a general audience. So that sports and journalism were that, uh, that initial marriage uh, that, that got me started in high school and then in college. Oh, cool. Well, that's great. Well, let's, let's kind of Fast forward to that and, and talk a little bit about your early experiences as a journalist and, and maybe the any examples of things that shaped you and, and shaped how you kind of approach the craft today. Yeah, so I, as I said, started in sports journalism, got some good training there, but eventually kind of fell out of love with that. It uh, The games weren't as much fun <laughs> for me when it was my job. And I, I, I gravitated to other forms of journalism, um, particularly local government. Um, so city, county, state. Uh, I went to school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, which is... Um, a great Big Ten school, and it happens to be the state capital. And it was just an interesting place. 
uh, to uh, explore. Uh, and so I, uh, I took a number of internships with um, local newspapers. So this is the 1990s, um, and uh, newspapers were really the beating heart of um, primary fact-gathering, like good fundamental journalism in this country. Uh, and they were every state, every mid-sized city, even small cities had staffs of really strong, earnest, fundamentally uh, committed uh, reporters and editors doing journalism as a public service. And I was really drawn to that. Uh, so I, I made the rounds. Uh, Madison, uh, Quad Cities of Illinois and Iowa, uh, Dubuque, Iowa, which was my hometown newspaper. I did internships at all these places and learned from um, really good, committed professionals and, and absorbed some of the fundamental values of journalism as a public service. Yeah, and I thought in conversations previously, you mentioned you did some investigative uh, journalism early in your career. What was that like? Yeah, so some of these um, older generation influences, let's say, uh, they had their own influence from, say, the, the Woodburn and Bernstein era of investigative journalism. And so that was uh, instilled in me and, and my contemporaries. And uh, so I was looking out for um, uh, corruption, abuse, um, trying to expose wrongdoing. That was one of the highest values of journalism and still is. Uh, it's just harder to do in today's world. Um, we can get into that later if you want, but I, uh, there were a couple of examples I can point to. One as a young reporter at the Capitol Times in Madison, Wisconsin, I uncovered a local city councilman who was abusing his power on the Alcohol License Review Committee. So he was in a position of power over tavern owners and was using that to uh, shake them down for campaign contributions <laughs> uh, and, and threatening uh, license revocations and things. If they didn't do his bidding. So this was just not um, acceptable <laughs> with community norms in Madison, Wisconsin as kind of a clean and good government kind of place. So I, I did the legwork, a lot of shoe leather reporting, talked to people, got it all on the record, exposed it in the newspaper, and then got results. Uh, this individual stepped down from uh, uh, that um, position on the licensing review committee. And so that was one example that, that kind of set the stage for me to go to a bigger newspaper, the Seattle times, um, which was sort of my next chapter. So that's what brought you to Seattle was the Seattle times. Yes. So, um, I had done one internship during college, but my last one was at the Seattle times. So this was, you know, I had never been to the West coast or the East coast. As I said, I'd only been on a plane once. So I, I drove in this rusty old Pontiac all the way out to Seattle, 2000 miles for a summer internship at the Seattle times. And the place was just 
awe-inspiring to me. Like there, it had just won two Pulitzer Prizes the summer of my senior year of, of college, uh, loaded with investigative reporting and editing talent, great photographers, graphic design. It was uh, sort of like a, a miniature New York Times on a regional level. I, I loved it. And then I, I mean, coming out to Seattle, uh, I saw the, the mountains and the water, and uh, there was so much to explore in the great Pacific Northwest. Um, so I was hooked personally and professionally. So how do you get into science reporting? You've got this great foundation of, of uh, lots of different types of journalism. What leads you to science reporting? You know, that's happenstance. Uh, like sometimes you just get lucky <laughs> in, in life. I didn't really study it in college. Didn't see that as uh, anything of all that I was that interested in. But at the Seattle Times, I had um, an opportunity after about my first year there to choose between the biotechnology beat on the business desk or uh, retail. And retail at that time had Starbucks, uh, Costco, Nordstrom, uh, REI, major uh, global brands uh, doing interesting things. Uh, so that was um, a pretty high profile beat. Biotech was much less understood in the broader community at large, uh, but it was seen as something of a 21st century um, source of jobs and potential uh, economic strength for the Seattle region. Uh, and at the time, Seattle had a company called Immunex, uh, which developed Enbrel, one of the biggest selling biotech drugs ever, um, then and now. And they ended up getting acquired by Amgen. And that was like the big story. My first year on the beat, uh, it turned out to be just a really exciting uh, area where I could learn about science and medicine and business, ethical issues. Um, it, it, it was, um, I just thought it was fascinating. So let me just hold on for a second. Are you saying you don't, I thought for sure you had kind of significant scientific training because your kind of facility with all things uh, biotechnology is so, so deep. You, you, you didn't really have a strong interest in, in biotechnology and science prior to the Seattle Times? No, <laughs> I learned on the job at the newspaper and this was a real high wire act. I mean, it was, it was really scary. I can't tell you those first few press releases I'd read and I, I didn't know what a P value was or a confidence interval. I mean, wow. I was terrified that I would screw this up and embarrass myself and my newspaper. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't, uh, it was uh, a real leap of faith. Uh, I got to credit a lot of the people in the Seattle biotech community for, uh, taking their time and, and helping educate me. Uh, I, I'm probably, if I went back and read some of those first stories, I'm sure I would cringe, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I was committed to learning. And I think a lot of people recognize that. And that I, I had a little bit of time and space because remember, this is still newspaper time. I didn't have to publish things immediately within 30 minutes. Uh, I, I would have an entire day or several days to figure something out sometimes, uh, before it, it would, um, it hit the presses. Um, so that, that helped. But then, you know, of course, as I got more 
committed over time. I, I uh, did some professional education. I did a like a boot camp for science journalists at MIT about a year and a half in. Uh, and then I actually did a fellowship, a whole sabbatical year at MIT for science journalists um, a few years later. Wow. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people out in long run podcast land that, that are as shocked as I am, because uh, I thought for sure that was your, you know, you had you know, a deep background educationally in, in science and in, in biotechnology. So let's, let's move forward a little to, um, kind of closer to where you are today. How does, you know, how do you start getting involved in kind of, you know, web-based publishing and, um, you know, the other aspects of your kind of current portfolio? You know, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting because uh, so I made a reference to that Night Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT. That was 2005 to 2006 uh, fellowship year. And um, that was around the time. So I was about 30 years old <laughs> and the writing was on the wall that the Internet was here. It was still this is pre-social media, but it's it's Web 1.0. And it's clear that readers and advertisers are moving to the Internet and that newspapers, dead tree media, God love them, we're, we're not really going to be very long for this world. Um, so I thought about that a lot deeply that year. And because uh, uh, I didn't want to just be part of, um, you know, writing that that ship uh, down. And I, I wanted to continue to do biotech journalism in a, a business model and an environment that had some staying power. <clears throat> so I came back, I saw that newspapers were, uh, were not really um, adapting as well as maybe they could or as quickly as they needed to. So I, I I went to Bloomberg News for a while, uh, about a year and a half. I moved to San Francisco, uh, got to cover biotech on a national scale, kind of spread my wings a bit from that regional coverage of regional newspaper, uh, covered Genentech, Gilead, Amgen, and, and wrote you know for this um, financial international audience. Uh, a really good experience for me in changing to that electronic environment. Uh, where speed was at a premium, accuracy was still uh, you know, a given, uh, a fundamental value, but you really needed to amp up the, the competitive metabolism to, um, to write at Bloomberg. Uh, and so that was kind of how I started. Then um, I, I, but I kind of missed the, um, the startup world because <laughs> uh, writing at Bloomberg, they're interested in stocks. And so, you know, whatever might move Genentech stock would be a phase three trial for a Vastin or something like that. I didn't have as much occasion to write about two guys in a dog startups <laughs> where <laughs> you would you would have some really interesting idea and you could uh, test it out and watch it grow. So I I, uh, I was drawn to go to a startup called Xconomy, um, which is no longer around, uh, but it was it was online. So I thought it was simpatico with the internet era. Uh, we're going to figure out the business models uh, on the fly, uh, and I thought this is going to be a platform where I could do some of that uh, 
reporting to the biotech journalism about the most innovative things that I found just really fun and interesting. So look, I, I get that you saw the writing on the wall for newspapers, but still this was, this was pretty early and it sounds like you're leaving a pretty significant role at the Seattle times and something that's pretty kind of stable, if you will, for this new world of, of internet publishing is this kind of, are you an independent contributor at this point? Was it risky and kind of scary to, to leave the job at the, at the times? Well, yes, I, I, it was a uh, really important professional home for me. Uh, I, I formed a lot of strong relationships with editors and fellow reporters and, and others there. Uh, and it, it embodied a lot of the values of local community journalism, like really committed to citizens on the local level, to serving citizens with quality information they need to make decisions in their daily lives. And that's everything from holding your city council accountable, like I referenced earlier, to um, to keeping a close eye on businesses and their responsibility in the world. Uh, so I, I owed a lot to and, and of course, they, you know, it, it gave me the the flexibility and the latitude to learn everything that I was able to learn about biotech. So it was not an easy decision, um, but I thought I had to do it. Um, and so I, yeah, went, went to Bloomberg and then joined the startup world um, at Xconomy. So tell me how you built, I mean, I think that's where I first got to know you when you were at, at Xconomy. Tell me about how you kind of built your network within biotech uh, at Xconomy, which is obviously now more of a national scope. Um, you know, how did you become Luke Timmerman <laughs> while you were at X Xconomy? Well, okay. So again, there's some happenstance that's going on here. Um, I, uh, I joined Xconomy. This company had gotten started with some angel funding based out of Boston. Uh, and it, I was, I don't know, some like employee number seven, I think. It was less than a year old. And the, the task was to open up the first West Coast Bureau in Seattle. So I, I had moved briefly to San Francisco for Bloomberg, but I kind of wanted to move back to Seattle. I, I felt this was like home and my wife was from here too. And so uh, moved back to Seattle, open up that bureau and then covered biotech both in Boston uh, from a local level and in Seattle. So I was doing some of what I had said I wanted to do, covering startups, uh, everything innovative from small companies through large companies. And um, then we continued to grow on that sort of local national model. Uh, so I, I got um, involved in opening up bureaus in San Francisco and San Diego, Detroit, Wisconsin, where I'm originally from. So I was traveling a lot and, you know, really, uh, oh, I learned so much at this, uh, this stint about, I mean, I I was working really hard covering uh, innovative stories in each of these local regions every day. Uh, so I just had occasion to meet a lot of people, interview a lot of people, learn a lot about all kinds of different areas of biotech, whether it be cancer, or immunology, diabetes, obesity. I mean, on and on and on. Rare disease. Uh, I, I learned about entrepreneurship from the way that 
companies got really started with their science and their financing strategies. Uh, but I also thought about how all of this might apply to what I was doing because I was an entrepreneur of sorts too. I, I wasn't the founder of this company, um, but I was an early employee. And so I, I got to confront these <laughs> highly ambiguous situations. Like how do you start a brand new bureau in a region, go there and meet people and write stories that people are going to want to read. I just like dove in and figured things out and I, I, I loved it. And I think all of these articles were on the free web. Uh, and so they got passed around and shared. And I guess a lot of people noticed and liked what I was doing and appreciated it. Uh, and so it just kind of accumulated with time where I, I became better known for this kind of journalism. So one of the things that I think differentiates you from, from other kind of journalists in our space is you have, um, you have covered kind of personalities as well. You have gotten to know a lot of leaders in the industry. You've kind of talked to them, not just obviously it's culminated in long run podcasts, but even before that, you've always had a, uh, an ability to kind of bring out the, the people involved in biotech. Did it start at this point? How did this kind of come about where you've got these relationships and people are, you know, talking to you as, as not just a journalist colleague, but also as a friend? Yeah, well, um, I definitely was always interested in people. I would write profiles or I would try to write magazine style profiles like as quickly as I could for newspaper deadlines or then Internet deadlines. But I, yeah, I was just genuinely interested in and curious about people's stories, how they became the person that they are. Um, I, I didn't see people just as talking heads who uh, were there to give me a quote in the fourth paragraph of my story. Uh, there was, they, they, they had their own personal journeys that brought them to where they were. And I just saw that as part of my job to figure that out. I, I was genuinely curious. And then I thought people, maybe people want to read this. And, and I got positive feedback too from close colleagues who would say, geez, I, I didn't know anything about this person that, uh, I, I've been working with for five years. Uh, thank you for <laughs> shedding some light on how this person, uh, became the person that they are. So, uh, I guess the flip side of that, it's something I've always wanted to ask you. The flip side of that might be, um, obviously you have these relationships that you need to maintain because these are folks that you're going to be, um, uh, kind of interviewing and, and, um, learning from, uh, uh, throughout your, your process. But also these are people that you may have to criticize. And, you know, I, I, I always know that if I do something wrong and despite our friendship, if I do something dumb, you're probably going to report the fact that I did something dumb. So, uh, tell me about juggling that relationship, but also the objectivity that needs to happen as a journalist. Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, one of the <laughs> commandments, if you will, <laughs> would is that the journalist's first responsibility is to the readers uh, or the listeners in this case. So you just have to pursue your stories with intellectual honesty. 
Uh, and yeah, that means if uh, somebody screws up, you say they screwed up and, and how. Um, now, you can do that in a way that's still fair. Um, uh, I was trained that, you know, you don't go around making accusations against people without giving them a chance to respond. There's just some fundamental fairness there. Uh, and, and so I, I carry forward with those, um, those, those learnings from, um, just kind of basic fundamental journalism. Um, and I think, you know, it, there, there will be times when, uh, I clash with sources and sometimes they can be thin skinned and, you know, we don't talk again. <laughs> um, other times people recognize that this is my job and I'm not grinding an ax or, or, you know, trying to, I'm not out to get anybody. Um, but, um, accountability through journalism is, is a really important part of it. I mean, we need, we need journalism to exist as, um, a tool for accountability in uh, in government, in business, in uh, anywhere there's power, it needs journalism to serve um, as a function to to hold power accountable. So I, I take that seriously. Couldn't agree more. Um, that being said, you do have, let's just say, in, in my opinion, you do have more of an optimistic bent to your. Um, to your reporting, you, you don't have the the negative kind of snarky uh, approach um, that that some folks come with, and and that a lot of people like to read about. That it gets a lot of clicks. Um, did you? Is that a was that a kind of conscious choice in the the kind of style or tone of your reporting? You know, not really. I, I don't think it's really in my nature uh, to to be that way. Um, I, I I think um, maybe I've become a little more positive, as you say, or, or empathetic toward the entrepreneurial challenge, struggles, journey, in part by becoming an entrepreneur myself. Uh, I, I think that I, I've, I might have a little more restraint or, or give people a little more benefit of the doubt when I see something that goes wrong, then maybe earlier in my career when um, I was on staff and didn't really understand um, all the considerations or pressures that might be on senior management, why some things might be. I try to assume good intentions and, and not assume the worst uh, of, of people. I think that's a good place to start. You already know patient enrollment is a pervasive problem in clinical research. What you might not know is that there's a solution, Elego Health Research. Elego is the ultimate patient provider, offering non-traditional access that delivers millions of previously untapped participants for your trial. You get the patients you need when you need them. No endless searching, no waiting. And regardless of age, location, gender, race, or background, patients get the treatments they need faster. Learn more at elgohealthresearch.com. And if you've never heard of the Bioinvestor Forum, you're missing out. 
back this year in person. The event will be held at the Hilton San Francisco Union Square on October 17th and 18th. It's one of the most efficient ways for emerging biotech companies to pitch their technology to investors, bankers, and potential industry partners. More than 85 companies are already confirmed to present their work. Join us for two days of candid panel discussions on policy, business, finance, and R&D. It's not too late to register at bio.org BIF. I think this is a good place to just ask you to pause for a second as you're thinking about your career to this point. Um, I know that you have young journalists that are um, listeners to the Long Run podcast. So is there anything in this early part of your career that you, you wish you knew back then that you think you know now that you can pass along to young reporters or people who want to kind of follow in your footsteps? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, one thing is important is finding a good boss and a good environment to work in. Uh, there's, it's uh, there are some really good places, but there's also been a lot of pressure and a lot of change to move really quickly in journalism. And I don't think it's that easy for young people to get the kind of training or experiences that I was fortunate enough to get, you know, rewinding back at the Seattle times, I only had to write maybe three articles a week. And as long as they were good, I had, you know, uh, the, the editors would give me a pretty long leash, a fair bit of autonomy. That was really important for helping me, uh, learn and grow. Uh, I, I wasn't in a boiler room. Um, so I guess to a younger person, I would say, find yourself a good boss, someone that you, you can learn from and work for for a while uh, and uh, and hopefully, you know, get some good published works. Terrific. So let's go forward to how do, how does the Timmerman report come about? Um, how do you make the decision to kind of go on your own and and become an entrepreneur and try this new life? Yeah, so this is what was around 2014. I decided it was uh, maybe about six years in at Xconomy. It was time for me to leave, move on. It was in uh, good hands. Uh, I, I wanted to work on a book, so I worked on my book about Lee Hood, right. Trailblazer of the Genomics Age. So I gave myself a book leave. I had some savings, and I was going to finish that up and then figure out what I was going to do next. By the way, and just that was quickly, sorry to interrupt, but why Lee Hood? I mean, if you, if you wanted to write a book, why Lee Hood? What, what, how did that come about? Well, so uh, I kind of had the itch to write a book. And uh, this was around the time Steve Jobs' book came out by Walter Isaacson. And here was a biography of um, you know a tech titan who was still alive at the time. <laughs> and Isaacson had been able to interview him uh, and, and extract a whole lot of really good insights. So it was a rare thing to be able to do a living biography. Because uh, usually it's about people like Einstein who've been dead, you know, for a long, long time. And all you've got is the archival records. Um, and I thought, well, OK, who is someone that I know who has had a similar kind of catalytic impact? Maybe not similar, but who, who has had a, a catalytic impact on biotech? And I've known had known Hood since my early days at the Seattle Times. He was best known for leading the team that developed the first automated DNA sequencer. 
and then became something of a proselytizer for personalized medicine based on all this genomic information. So clearly the, the technology had sparked um, a whole movement in medicine and continues to. I thought he was an interesting and complex character. The accomplishment was quite consequential uh, to the modern world. So I thought there was a really good story here. I was very well positioned to tell it. And I could interview him while he was still alive. Uh, it, 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 um, it was an exciting project. Animated me for quite a while. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. But you asked, um, okay, so I, I went on book leave uh, at the end of Exconomy and then um, had to figure out what my next move was going to be. And so it was pretty clear it was either going to go, I was going to go to a large media company again or start my own thing. And uh, I had thought a lot about business models referenced earlier. I didn't think that the free content uh, you know, pretty much exclusively free content with support from advertising was going to pay the bills. Exconomy, I worked on events. Events had become a very big part of the business. I was a bit burned out on events. Uh, so I, I wanted to do something else that I thought would reward uh, me and incentivize me to do the kind of quality journalism that I wanted to do. And that pointed me towards subscriptions. And this was not obvious at the time. This was before Substack, even late 2014. Uh, content, the ethos of the Internet was still everything's got to be free. Lots of people tried to talk me out of this. Um, but I thought, well, what if you came up with a low priced subscription model uh, at that time? $99 a year was was where I started. Uh, and the question was, would a lot of these loyal readers who um, were getting a lot of value, they told me they were getting a lot of value out of my coverage that was on the free web, whether that be it gave them an investment idea, maybe they learned about someone that helped them get a job. Um, but this was not just reporting that was, you know, quick bits of entertainment. This, this was high value writing. And, um, I thought I needed to be able to capture some of that value for myself in a more efficient way. So it was subscriptions and, and I went with it, started it in February of 2015. And at the time, uh, was Timmerman report kind of uh, one of say two or three or, or how many other, um, you know, uh, subscription, uh, uh, organizations were out there at the time in, in 2015. Cause I'd like to get a sense for how you, how you decided you were going to be different. Um, and, and your value proposition for the, the $99 subscriber versus others who were, were doing it similarly. Very few comps that I could look at at that time. Uh, there was <laughs> Andrew Sullivan was a fairly popular politics blogger mm -hmm. at that time who had gone with a subscription model. Ben Thompson uh, of Stratechery was someone that I looked at 
Uh, so he would be an analyst type writing for a tech audience. There was also the information by Jessica Lesson, uh, although she had captured some venture capital, had some connections there and was building a staff. So that was a little bit different. But there was nothing like this in biotech. There were um, older uh, subscription publications that were what you call trade journals that had very high priced subscription models. So that was not exactly a, a comparable. Um, no, this was, I, I was aspiring to be the first uh, paid newsletter in biotechnology. That's cool. That's cool. So look, I, I want to make sure that we move on to um, some of the things you're doing philanthropically, because that is just absolutely extraordinary. And, and um, before we get into that, I know that you've blended your love of mountaineering with um, some of your phil philanthropic missions. So I do want to ask how you got involved with mountaineering and, and where that passion started before we get to how you use that and your, your um, journalistic business to actually make the world a better place. So tell me about how you became a world-class mountaineer. <laughs> well, um, yeah, again, uh, so I was based here in Seattle. And of course, you, you look at Mount Rainier out the window some days in the summer and think, wow, I should, I should try to climb that. Um, climbed it for the first time in 2004, uh, a little before age 30. So I came to this late. And uh, but I found that I I really enjoyed it. I did it with a couple of old college buddies. And so I got camaraderie um, in the mountains, the whole aesthetic beauty, the sense of uh, seeing these amazing places, like sunrises that few people get to see, um, like physical challenge, you know, seeing what I was capable of uh, in, in and going up to high altitude, um, I, I, I had some natural aptitude for it as well, which was kind of clear and obvious to me early on. Um, and so I, I just got into it and I made it an annual guys trip uh, with uh, these two old friends from Wisconsin. We would travel to parts of the U.S. and try different elevations, different peaks. Eventually, uh, came to climb the highest peaks in North America and South America, Denali and Aconcagua. And that was, those two experiences were the ones that made me think that maybe, just maybe, um, I could try to climb Mount Everest. So that the, the, the million dollar question here is how do you take that, that, love of mountaineering, this hobby that um, becomes something that's obviously very important to you and combine that with your biotech network and decide to do these philanthropic uh, endeavors that have become so successful. Tell us about how that came about. Yeah, well, it's probably a, just a middle life crisis. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, seriously, um, in let's see, this was 2017. I was um, a couple years in on the Timmerman Report and hit my early goals of sustainability. So I had gotten over a thousand subscribers, had worked very, very hard to get there um, and thought that I had a stable platform. And I had made one of these lists of most influential people 
in biotech. And that made me do a little bit of soul searching. And because, okay, if I've actually got this platform and I've got some influence, the question then becomes, what do I really want to do with that? I had been writing columns, so opinion writing for quite some time. And as an opinion writer, you know, you get some feedback, I mean, you have your opinions. Sometimes you think people are listening. Other times you think it's falling on deaf ears. It's hard to tell. I, I wanted to find a way to convert influence into mobilization or action. I, I wanted to shift the, I didn't want to just rev the engine up in my garage. I wanted to move the transition into first gear, second gear, third gear, and put those, those wheels in motion. And um, I was thinking about the mountains, Mount Everest in particular. Uh, I did not really have the inclination to just climb it. Um, but I thought if I could engage the biotech community, if I could use my platform uh, to, uh, to benefit a good cause, a cause that I cared about and that my readers cared about, uh, I might be able to do some, some real good with, uh, the high profile that comes from climbing the highest mountain in the world. So, um, I talked with uh, my friends at Alpine Ascent's guide service about it. They thought I was fit to climb Everest. Uh, I then uh, noticed that they had a partnership already with uh, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center here in Seattle, something called Climb to Fight Cancer. They had an existing program in place where people could climb mountains and raise money to support cancer research. And this is just when uh, everything clicked for me. I thought, this is perfect. I know the excellence of this institution. I've interviewed scientists there over the years. I can use my platform to encourage the biotech community to give back to cancer research, uh, to, to support, um, uh, uh, to take advantage of the, the um, extraordinary challenge of, of climbing Everest. And uh, so uh, it, uh, this proposal sounded good to everyone involved, and uh, I went ahead and, and climbed it in 2018, raised $340,000, was able to uh, summit successfully and come back with all my fingers and toes intact. Uh, it was just a huge, huge all-around success and really set the, uh, it gave me the bug that, um, gosh, I could do something here in the community that I had never dreamed of. I, I, I had no, no real template no, the, for, for doing anything like this. That's so cool. And of course, it ultimately ended up benefiting uh, an organization I'm a part of uh, called Life Science Cares. For those out in uh, long run land that don't know, Life Science Cares is an organization focused on impacting poverty in the major biopharma um, communities in the country. And um, we basically partner with the best nonprofits doing work against poverty in areas of uh, basic human survival, in areas of education, and in areas of accessing economic opportunity. And we kind of partner with them to try to make a difference using our both human and financial capital from the industry. And so um, one of the the ways that your love of mountaineering and this this newfound philanthropic uh, uh, um, 
uh, initiative had kind of emerged is in the Timmerman Traverse for Life Science Cares, which has been just absolutely extraordinary in providing support for life science cares, but also as extraordinary at creating tremendous relationships and um, really engaging the entire industry on this opportunity to give back and to do something uh, uh, really meaningful. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the first, uh, you know, your vision initially for Timmerman Traverse and, uh, and kind of where it is today. Yeah, well, this all like everything, it seems, it stems back to my journalism. I first learned about life science cares from talking to you <laughs> in the er- early days, and and I thought, I I thought this was a mission that uh, really resonated with me. Uh, I I um, thought about off and on ways in which I could get involved and help out fighting poverty through life science cares. Um, so. Um, kind of in the media, in, in the intermediate step, uh, I came back from Everest. I knew that I could not climb a higher mountain than that, but uh, that I could raise even more money for cancer research. And, and Bob Moore, actually, of Alta Partners, was one of the people who lit that fire and said, you know, you ought to think about how to raise a million dollars for cancer research. Mm. And this is, I, I was just exhausted coming home from Everest. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I don't know how to do that. Um, but it was a really great expression of confidence. And I thought about it and I thought I'd have to assemble a team. So I assembled a team the following year to go climb Kilimanjaro in Africa and uh, asked every single person on that trip to raise $50,000, which was an audacious amount of money for <laughs> for that. Uh, I had no idea if that would fly, but it did. We raised $1.6 million as a team and climbed the highest peak in Africa. And was I was able to share the um, that that belonging, that camaraderie, that uh, always appealed to me uh, as part of mountain trips, the aesthetic beauty, enjoying nature, the physical challenge of getting your your body ready for the rigors of altitude. Um, I saw the the team uh, embracing all of this. They loved it like I did, and I thought I can share. I can spread this even further. Now, fast forward. So we had a pandemic here, which was not a lot of fun. I had cabin fever like a lot of people. (laughs) I wanted to get outside. And uh, I remember this was right after we got the first vaccines. February, I think, of 21, March. I I had to wait a long time, but... I, I, you could see that things were going to improve. I went to Life Science Cares. I went to Sarah McDonald and said, hey, I've got an idea, an adaptation of sorts that I want to try with Life Science Cares. Let's go climb the Presidential Traverse in New Hampshire. So it's close to Boston. People are not going to have to fly overseas and deal with whatever passport issues there might be. It's two and a half days. It's shorter. Uh, they can get seven peaks, including Mount Washington, Adams, Jefferson. These are named after presidents. Uh, it's a really great thing. And it might be, I might be able to uh, adapt some of the the wonderful things of that Kilimanjaro expedition to a domestic trip. And, sh- and, and uh, we, we talked about it. I thought, how about we ask these people to raise $25,000 because <laughs> it was a shorter trip. And uh, um, we'll see, you know, maybe we could raise half a million. That first year we raised 730,000 and had an awesome group. We had an awesome time. Those relationships were formed. I thought this, this is it. This is, um, this is another, 
um, extension of the model and uh, been doing it ever since. And you and you're taking on these trips. These are some people are experienced um, outdoorsy people, but others are really not there. This is the first time that they've been involved in anything like this. So what's it like to bring these these different folks, most of whom, many of whom are C-suite executives. These are leaders within our industry coming together to do something that is really hard. <laughs> At least it's hard for me. I'm an indoorsman, so uh, it, it sounds really hard. I know, I know. But if you ever want to join, Rob, let me know. Um, I'll get right back to you on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's funny. As these things have grown, the word of mouth has spread. A lot of people want to talk about it with me. It's it's often a bit of small talk at the beginning of interviews that I conduct now. People will say, hey, I, I hike a little. I like to get out in the Sierras or we're someplace near home. So I keep a little list of potential candidates. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I do have to interview candidates about things that they do in the outdoors and their fitness routine. Cause I, I don't, I don't want people to, um, do something that's way too far out of their comfort zone that they have a lousy time. Uh, but I do want them to, uh, to train for it and to work for it. And, uh, it's been really cool to see people step up to this challenge. And one of the things that I, I love that you've done as well is you, I know you and I share this, um, this real um, kind of passion for diversity uh, in our industry. And um, you uh, believe in that in everything you do. And, and you've really tried to make sure that um, this, this hike is also diverse. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and about the relationships that you've formed on the trail um, uh, with, and not only between you and the participants, but also between the participants themselves. Yeah. So going back to that first Kilimanjaro expedition in 2019, I set a goal of uh, getting half men and half women on the team. And I wanted diversity that was beyond just that. I, I wanted people of color, Older, younger, people from different geographies, people with different uh, professional interests, whether that be therapeutic or diagnostic or uh, maybe health IT or bioinformatics. I just thought that would make for a really fun and interesting group of people and and diverse conversations on the trails. And um, and I also thought, too, you know, if I were to just <laughs> go with the flow and pick all the CEOs who, you know, had the most ability to raise the funds, uh, I, I might. Well, if I weren't intentional about building a diverse team, I could very well end up with 85 or 90 percent, 50 something white males. And if that were the case, then I've done a disservice because a lot of that I'm effectively closing the doors to a lot of people who could benefit from these um, this this special kind of networking that results. So it was on me to um, to work extra hard to recruit that team, and and I think because that effort was successful. I think a lot of people recognized it and it's, uh, it's encouraged more people who, um, might not necessarily think of themselves as an automatic candidate, uh, to, to think maybe, maybe they can join, maybe they can fit in. They're welcome. They belong here. 
Um, and so uh, I've kept uh, in, insisting on that diversity because there's just so many. I mean, you know this. There's so many people from who are immigrants from different parts of the country. People come from disadvantaged backgrounds who go on to achieve amazing things in this industry. And um, th th they sometimes just need, you know, somebody to open a door, um, show, show a little confidence. Uh, it can it can work wonders. Absolutely. And by the time this airs, um, the Timmerman Traverse 2023 will have completed. And I believe uh, we will end up somewhere north of $1.1 million raised for Life Science Cares this year uh, by this event. So it's just been an unbelievable success and will do uh, just a tremendous amount of good, not just in Boston, but in all the Life Science Cares sites. So once again, on behalf of everybody uh, involved with Life Science Cares, we couldn't be more appreciative of all the work that you and all the people involved with the Timberman Traverse uh, are doing and have done. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's over two point seven million for the three years. Wow. This being the thir third year, and um, I am even more well, just as important as the funds that we've raised to fight poverty. Uh, I I am impressed by the initiative that members of these teams have taken on their own. So you know this uh, that uh, there's a. A program afoot to expand Project On Ramp to a thousand interns from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, to to work summer internships in the biotech industry around the country by 2027. And the seeds for that were planted on that very first traverse between some conversations that that people had. And um, I am just immensely uh, proud to to know that um, that these trips have that kind of ability to um, to leverage um, more more commitment more giving in the biotech community beyond just whatever happens on the trail or on an individual campaign well thank you we have a saying at life science cares that uh, we ask people to care actively it's good to to you know to sign the petition it's even good to write the check but folks who really want to get their hands dirty and and change the world are the people that are really going to make a difference and you're just a tremendous example of that so i know we're getting close to to time and i want to kind of uh finish up by talking about the future um uh where do you see kind of timmerman report going where do you see uh, biotech going, you know, what are some of the, the forecasts that you have for um, what's happening in the industry and what's happening with um, your reporting and your kind of overall portfolio of, of businesses uh, going from here? Well, I still very much love writing about startups. I love talking to entrepreneurs about the Series A, the Series B, that early partnership, the key decisions that they make early on that often set themselves up for either success or failure later down the road. Um, talking with people about their visions uh, just is kind of endlessly fascinating for me. Now, this has been, as you know, a very difficult couple of years in biotech. So um, I, I see a lot of people going through some hard times. There's no getting around that. I also think it is a short-term cycle 
of the sort that we have seen before. And that fundamentally, this is there's just never been a better time for starting a biotech company. Uh, the, when I look at the tools that are available in the lab from we mentioned DNA sequencing earlier, but proteomics, RNA um, analysis, single cell, uh, cryo-EM, all this imaging stuff on just understanding of the biology and then the different modalities from small molecules through biologics and oligos and cell therapy, gene therapy. There is just, this is absolutely a, a golden age and um, we're making a big impact against all kinds of diseases. Uh, so it, I, I, uh, I think the future is bright for the industry long term. Um, it looks good for me too to be uh, an eyewitness, uh, someone privileged enough to uh, get access and and to tell these stories as they're happening. Um, I, you know, I, I I'm increasingly tapping into the the generosity of the industry uh, through this uh, community work. Um, which I'm passionate about. So I, I, um, I, I'm a pretty lucky guy. Well, we're very lucky to have you in this industry, Luke. And I just want to say thank you for allowing me to kind of um, take over your podcast. And uh, I hope that people found it as interesting as I did in getting to know you a little better and getting to know your backstory and, and some of the amazing things that you do. So on behalf of everyone uh, in, in long run podcast uh, land, I want to say thank you, Luke Timmerman, for being our guest. And uh, we'll look forward to getting back to the real interviewer on the next pod. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Peter Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>